We are in Genesis chapter 16, and uh, as I said last week, uh, when uh, as we were starting, that I really didn't know how long that chapter was going to this chapter was going to take us. Uh, so I gave you a study sheet a couple weeks ago for the entire chapter, and you still have that, I presume. And we are still in 16 today. And I can assure you we will still be in 16 next week. Because <laughs> the longer I spend here uh, in this chapter, the more, uh, the richer it becomes, to me personally anyway. I've, I've, uh, I've really been enjoying this. I, I, if you had asked me when we started Genesis if I would be particularly enjoying the study of Hagar, I would have said probably not, <laughs> but I really am, and I'm, uh, and uh, so hopefully some of that will rub off on you guys today as we as we go forward. <clears throat> so uh, let's pick up uh, and read in chapter 16. We'll just read the whole chapter. It's only 16 verses long, and uh, and then we can review some from last week and and remember some of the things we talked about and go on. <clears throat> So now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will build my house through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her mistreatment. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall, name his, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. <clears throat> then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lehoi Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. 
Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Okay, well, last week we didn't get very far. We just got about the first three or four verses or so. But what do you remember that we talked about last week? What was the common thing? Being barren? Using a maid servant. Okay. To use a surrogate in the in the case where your wife is barren. That this was this was cult, this was culturally kind of the normal thing to do. Okay. What else? Okay. Somebody's looking in the door there. You can encourage him to come in. Oh, he's gone away now. <laughs> okay, so so Abram had for for many years not not taken this route. Why is that? I think he was trusting God. Okay, he was trusting God. Uh, he obviously understood that God's norm for marriage was monogamy. Monogamy. <laughs> uh, and uh, could somebody tell me what is monogamy? <laughs> uh, don't say it. Whatever you're going to say, Jim, don't say it. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that God's norm for marriage was monogamy. Uh, he had been faithful to his wife all this time, and now all of a sudden he and Sarah opt for this other plan. Why do they do that? Okay, they lost sight. Okay. Okay, and so what do you, what do you think's going on there? That God tells him, you know, he tells him his part, but doesn't necessarily think that it's going to be through Sarah. Through Sarah. Okay. Okay. All right. Who initiates this proposal? Sarah. Sarah does. Yeah. And 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 so I think very likely uh, that's what's going on here is that is that Sarai's thinking well God's promising this to my husband but he's not necessarily promising it to me and I think it begins to maybe dawn on her at this point that maybe she's not included in this whole promise was she justified in that conclusion? Pardon? She could be. What do you think, Rick? Yes. Yeah. Why would they be? Why would we assume that the promise to Abram also is a promise to Sarai? Why should he have assumed that? Pardon? She was his wife. God says they are one flesh. Uh, we, when we get into the New Testament, we see that idea of the of the wife being a fellow heir of the of the grace of the grace of God and the grace of of Christ, and uh, and so it seems pretty clear that Abram should have understood and Sarai should have understood that she is included in this promise. But they lose sight of this under the pressure of all these years without seeing the fulfillment of God's promise, all these years of living barren. Uh, on that point. I've been thinking the last 
off and on the last couple of weeks, ever since I we got to chapter 16, um, the idea that women are fellow heirs, I think, was a pretty new concept to everybody. Um, even though I think it's, we can prove it out if we if we study it out, mm-hmm. but I think the the Jews at the time of Christ coming did not see it that way. No, yeah, no. And I think yeah. there's a couple of reasons I actually got to that conclusion backwards. We got to That's not surprising. I know. <laughs> the reason, one of the reasons is we got to chapter 16. And I thought, hmm, here's the second the second time, and you know we're in 16 chapters now. Second time a woman's mentioned. And it's not very positive. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't actually thoroughly search back, but by my recollection, I can remember the, the first one, Eve. She did something that wasn't very nice. Now you've got Sarah. I do something that's not very good. And mm-hmm. So, and then starting to think through, okay, we've got all the history that God has left for us here, and we see God dealing with men primarily. They don't always do things right, but they do some things good. Mm-hmm. And the women that are mentioned. There are some good, but there are some that aren't so good. And I'm wondering now, maybe they concluded after all this time, well, you know, these women, I don't know if we can really trust them. Maybe that's why it's so radical. Well, I think very clearly, I think very clearly the cultural norm was that women were inferior. That is the cultural norm. I don't think that there's a, a grounding or a basis for that in Scripture. I think Scripture actually communicates quite the opposite. And, and I think that comes out right away in Genesis chapter 3 uh, after the fall and after uh, uh, Eve's failure there that, that once again we see her elevated in the eyes of Adam when he calls her Eve, the mother of all living, which he does so after the fall. So, so even after the fall, uh, quite clearly... Uh, what the scriptures communicated is this very high and elevated view of woman and this position of honor uh, <coughs> within the society and, and in God's yeah, esteem. And I agree with you, yeah. and that's the way yeah. you know, I am in my marriage. Yeah. But looking at this, I'm, you know, if I'm just a guy reading through it, I'm thinking, okay, here's the second one. Those, yeah. you know, those women, well, yeah. maybe they just kind of misunderstood this and yeah. did it wrong. Yeah. Well, and I think quite clearly culture has done that. Mm-hmm. And uh, <coughs> uh, so one of the things that uh, Abram, of course, struggles with, and we all struggle with, is this, and, and this is part of the whole issue of the chapter, is this, is this pressure that's put on us to live the way the culture lives and to think the way the culture thinks. And that's exactly the, the trap they fall into here, is that they begin to think the way the culture thinks rather than to think the way God thinks. And so the thing we pointed out last week was that Abram had clear reasons to know that what he was about to do was wrong. But he didn't think about those things. Yeah, were you going to say something, Mary? And that's really the greatest struggle. Yes. 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 Yeah. Those are those are leadership values. Yes. The others are Yes. And I, and and it's funny that both of you should mention uh, the story in Genesis three because in fact the way this story about Hagar is written in Genesis 16, it's quite clear that the Holy Spirit is trying to draw our attention back to Genesis 3. I don't know if you noticed that, but there are some clear kind of flags that he, that he puts here in the passage that to the Israelites who are reading the book of Genesis for the first time out there in the wilderness 
Uh, and of course, they're not taking a year to get through the first 16 chapters like we've done. <clears throat> they've, they've read it all within a short period of time. And when they read this chapter, there are certain concepts or words that are little flags that would cause their minds to go back to the Garden of Eden and back to the fall. Do you notice what those are? I mean, just aside from from the fact that Hagar, uh, I mean, that, that Sarai uh, uh, encourages her husband to do something he shouldn't do, but aside from that, which in itself is a significant flag, but what else would draw your attention back to the story in Genesis 3? Okay, okay. Yeah, I actually, that isn't even one I had noticed, but that's true that that both both Eve and Sarai fall into the trap of thinking that God is somehow withholding something from them that is good. And I hadn't even seen that one. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah, there are actually words, specific words there that come out in this chapter that come out in Genesis three. Okay, uh, I'm thinking specifically of the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Okay, that word listen there and the idea of Abram listening to the voice of his wife. When the Lord comes down in the garden uh, uh, to, to uh, confront Adam and Eve, the thing he says to Adam is that you have listened to the voice of your wife. Okay, and so that, that word there, it's just the same word, Okay. Uh, and then you'll notice what does what does Sarai do? What uh, what does Sarai specifically do in addition to her to her suggestion to her husband? What specific action does it say she took in verse three? Excuse me. She took Hagar and gave. Her. She took and she gave. Okay, that's identical uh, way of expression regarding to uh, regarding what Eve did with the fruit she took the fruit and she gave the fruit to her husband okay so it it really seems that the holy spirit here as he as he writes this for us is wanting our minds to go back to the garden and and to make some connection between what's happening here with Abraham and Sarai and what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden okay now one might say, well, obviously the connection is he's trying to tell husbands not to listen to their wives. <laughs> okay? But of course, obviously, that's not what he's saying. And, and uh, to read that into, either into the Genesis 3 passage or into the Genesis 16 passage would be, of course, to misread the Scriptures. That's not the point. The problem isn't that Abram listened to his wife. Later in this whole, in, whole situation with Hagar and Ishmael, God will specifically tell Abram that he needs to listen to his wife. Okay, so the problem isn't that he's listening to his wife. The problem that he's listening to his wife when he ought to be listening to God. And when his wife is saying something different than what God says, that's what the problem. That's where the problem lies. So his listening to his listening to Sarai or Adam's listening to Eve. The only problem with it is that they were telling him something that uh, something contrary to what God had told them. Okay. So I don't think, uh, I, uh, you know, as much as we as guys might like to jump on that and say, well, the point is don't listen to your wives. I don't think that's the point. The connection here, I think, is what the Holy Spirit is trying to impress upon us is the magnitude of Abram's failure here. Okay, 
We clearly understand in Genesis 3 the magnitude of Adam and Eve's failure there, particularly Adam's failure in the garden. I mean, it just had incredible consequences. It had incredible repercussions that we are still dealing with in our lives every day. Okay. And I think one of the things that the Holy Spirit was trying to impress upon us here is the, is the, magnitude, of, the magnitude of seriousness of what Abram and Sarai do at this point. This has just absolutely profound consequences. Okay. And so, so what we realize now as we think about this and we make this connection between Genesis 16 and Genesis chapter 3 is I think what the Lord is trying to tell us here is that He's, he's trying to point out to us, to show to us how God's great adversary is trying to destroy the work of God. So we have in the garden, we have this beautiful creation that God has made. We have this beautiful plan that God has made. We have this beautiful couple that He has created and brought together and made man and wife. And it's just an absolutely splendid and beautiful thing. And as we studied through that, uh, uh, back when we were in that part of Genesis, as we studied through that, we just saw how beautiful the whole creation was and how wonderful it all was. And, and then the adversary steps in and his intent is to destroy God's work, to absolutely ruin it. That's what he wants to do. Okay. Now, it becomes clear as we move through Genesis that God has this great plan to bless the nations. And He has chosen a man through whom and through whose descendants He will bring this great blessing on all the nations of the earth. And Satan is absolutely determined to destroy that plan. He wants to disrupt that plan. And so as he places into the heart and to the mind of Sarai this terrible idea to employ Hagar, he's enticing them to think that this is the way God's plan will be fulfilled. But in reality, his intention is to have born to Abram a descendant who is not of the promised line and to disrupt the promise of God and to disrupt the plan of God. And so we see the Holy Spirit reminding us how absolutely serious this whole issue is and how much God's adversary wants to disrupt and destroy God's plan to bless the nations. Now, when we looked at the whole story, uh, the earlier story of Abram, and we saw God call him and we saw that promise of, of blessing that God gave to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, as, as we contemplated that and thought about that, one of the things we talked about is that Abram, Abram is God's blessing bearer. He is the one who bears the blessing and through him the nations are to be blessed. But we, in, in, in extending that out and realizing that we are by faith descendants of Abram, then we too are the blessing bearers. Then there's a lesson that we can see in this whole situation here that God is... That, that it is God's intention that the nations of the world be blessed through our lives. And just as Satan was determined to destroy, destroy and disrupt the, the blessing of God through Abram and Sarai, he is equally determined to disrupt the blessing of God through your life to others. And one of the ways he does that is he entices us 
to do things the way the world would do things rather than the way God would have us do things. That's what he does here with Abram and Sarah, right? He just simply suggests to them that they just follow the cultural norm. And it just makes perfect sense. If you live in that culture, of course it's offensive to us now because we live in a different culture, but if we lived in that culture, this would make perfect sense to us. And we will go, wow, why didn't we think of this before? Okay. But in reality, what it is, is it's Satan's attempt to disrupt in our lives the flow of blessing to others. And I wonder how many times in our lives when we have opted to employ the methods of the world rather than to wait upon God's blessing and God's promise in our life, have we disrupted that flow of blessing that could be from our lives to others. I'll, use some, I'll give you some examples of that as we go on as, if, I, if I can remember to do that. But at any rate, um, so the question then is, and, and we've already touched on this some, but the question that, that comes to our mind is, what exactly is Abram's failure? How has Abram failed in this decision that he's made? And some people have already touched on some things, so. He didn't trust God. I think that's the first obvious thing. You know, which for the man of faith, kind of the epitome, uh, the personification of faith in Scripture for us, that's pretty striking, isn't it? Actually, it's kind of encouraging. If Abram can have times when he stumbles in the area of faith, that's, well, that's encouraging to me. And I don't feel quite so bad when, it, when I do it, even though I probably ought to feel as bad. But, but, but at least I recognize that for the best of men and for somebody, who is, somebody who's 85 years old and has walked by faith these many years, uh, he has here, obviously, he, 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 he has a breach of faith. He stumbles in his faith. Now, this is a guy, remember, who's had to pretty much go it alone all his life. Remember, he grew up in a home that didn't worship God. He grew up in a culture that didn't worship. He didn't have a lot of people patting him on the back. He didn't go to church every Sunday and sit in a class with a bunch of other people who had the same values as he had. He, he just pretty much went it all alone. You know, He had his wife as his support and encouragement and there were some others around from time to time apparently who would encourage him like uh, his encounter with Melchizedek. But pretty much Abram for 85 years of his life pretty much had to walk it pretty much alone. And he did a pretty good job of it. But from time to time he stumbled. And here's a time when he stumbled. He just lost confidence in in God. Now, not completely because God had promised him that the descendant would be through his own flesh, through his own body. So he's still clinging to that part of the promise, but he's lost sight of some of these broader issues that he knows are true about the nature of marriage and the nature of his relationship with Sarai and the importance of monogamy. These are things that he knows are true but they have slipped from his mind. They've slipped from his grasp. He just kind of, in the pressure of the moment, forgets them. You know, how many times in our own lives, I know in my life, there are times when there are things that I know are true, but in the pressure of the moment, it's not that I decide they aren't true, it's just I forget them. I just don't 
think about them. That's why, that's why the scriptural injunctions to meditate on the Word of God day and night and, and those kind of instructions are so vital to us because it's so easy under the pressure of circumstances and under the pressure of the way the world and the cultural court culture normally deals with the kind of problems we deal with from day to day, it's so easy for us to just see the way the world does things and see the way everybody else around us is doing things, is doing things and then just to forget momentarily, briefly perhaps, just to forget what God has told us. Yeah? It'd be nice if lights would flash or something. Wouldn't it be? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen that way, doesn't it? And, and so that's why we have to walk every moment of every day in dependence upon the Lord. Because we do. We face critical life-altering decisions every day. Along with the decisions about which cereal we're going to eat. Right? And we have to... We have to, uh, it probably doesn't matter whether you ate Cheerios this morning, but some of these other decisions, they matter. And so, it's so imperative that we remember the things that God has spoken to us. So, it was a failure of Abraham, a failure of faith. What other, and in what other ways did Abraham fail here? Okay. So, and I'm not sure what the dynamic they had was, or you know, what it could have been. But you should, you know, it all, it's all tied into what's already been said about the failure. But tie, you know, the, the part of recognizing mm-hmm. that that's a bad suggestion, and and his responsibility to correct that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that hadn't been going on. Uh, maybe she, you know, they're kind of separate. Let me ask this question of the women in the room. Okay, and I really want some answers to this. Okay. If you were Sarai and you'd come up with this idea and you came to your husband with this idea and, and now from your perspective you realize it's not a good idea but you came to him with that idea, how would you have wanted your husband to answer you and deal with you at this point? See, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind here is what Sarah has been going through. You know, our whole focus all this time has been Abraham, and he doesn't have any kids, and you know, and, and you know, and, and and us guys, we want kids, and you know, we want to have this, you know, and so it is an issue to us, but it's also a great issue to Sarah, and I think, I think really, probably, honestly, more of an issue to Sarah than it is to Abram, and she's been wrestling with this and struggling with this as long as Abram has been, and she has this. She has this innate God-given desire to bear children and she's not been able to do it. And she also has this desire that God has placed in her for her husband to be able to give to her husband the thing that he desires more than anything else. And she's not been able to do that. She's struggled with all of this for years and finally, 
her husband comes to her just thrilled to death that God has come and given him this vision and told him that he's going to bear descendants through his own body and he's all excited about it. And of course, he's oblivious to what the pain of what he's saying causes in her own in her heart. And so she's suffering and she's anguishing through all of this. And she's struggling with faith to believe God. And so finally, this idea dawns on her. Well, gee, everybody else is doing it this way. Why don't we do it this way? And she comes to her husband with the suggestion. And what she needs from her husband at this point is a a gentle, loving, affirmative no. That's what she needs. She doesn't need him to ridicule her. She doesn't need him to rebuke her. But he needs him to love her and say, Sarai, you are my wife. You are the wife of my youth. I have been faithful to you these 50 or 60 years and I'm not going to stop now. And God has given me this, God given me this promise and you are my wife. You're part of the promise. And God has already told me not to opt for adoption. Eliezer. God's made it clear. It's not going to be the way the world does things. It's going to be something He does. So I don't understand and I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know this. I'm going to be faithful to you because I love you and you are my wife. But He doesn't do that. Abram fails to lead and love his wife. But there's another failure here that really jumps out to me and uh, of both Abram and Sarai. And, and actually, it's one that didn't even really come to my mind until last night. We were sitting at the supper table and we were watching a, uh, uh, an interview, actually, on the computer on the, over the Internet of uh, an interview of uh, John Piper interviewing some guys involved with the Lausanne movement about the upcoming Lausanne conference uh, in October. And uh, and one of the things that one of these guys was talking about was the importance for the people of God to be different than the world around them. If if you and I if you and I as the children of God, if, if you and I as those who profess faith in Christ, if, if, if you and I who, who stand and say that, that Christ is the answer and that, that salvation is through Christ and that He is the only way, uh, if, if you and I stand and say those things and insist that, that this whole Christian gospel and Christian message is the unique message and the true message, how is the world to believe us if when they look at us, they don't see anything different? We look exactly like them. And there's this, this, this terrible failure on the part, oftentimes, of believers not to be different than the world. Now, it's not that we look at the way the world does things and we say, well, I want to be different than the world, so I will do it different than they do it. Okay, that's just nonconformity. That, 
you know, there's a lot of nonconformists in the world and the world looks at them and they say they're weird. Okay, so we're not talking about nonconformity here. We're talking about rather walking in the footsteps of Christ and walking by faith and obeying God. And to the degree that that makes us different or weird, the world looks at that and then they realize we must really believe this thing that we say. And so in this interview last night, it was interesting. One of the, one of the guys uh, was talking about the need for the global church to clearly define its doctrine on suffering. Because he said, how we respond to suffering has an impact on the world. And then he shared his own personal testimony. And he shared how, uh, at some point, and I don't know how recently, sometime in the past, his 14-year-old only son had died. And, uh, and sometime, he didn't, tell, he didn't say anything about the circumstances or anything. He just shared that fact. And then he said that sometime after that, his father called him up and said to him, uh, Lindsay, he said, uh, your mother and I would like you to uh, baptize us. He gave a date. He wanted to be baptized. And... Uh, and Lindsay said to his father, he says, well, that's great, but Dad, you need to understand that before you're baptized, you need to become a Christian. And he says, yes, we understand that. We're ready to do that now. And uh, so Lindsay said to his father, he says, what is it, Dad? He says, for 20 years, I've been trying to share Christ with you. For 20 years, I've been trying to get you... What is it? Why all of a sudden now do you decide you want to be a Christian? He says, well, it was one thing to hear you say all this stuff all these years. He says, when I saw how you dealt with the loss of your son, when I saw how you went through suffering, then I understood the reality and the truth of the message. Well, as I, was, as I was driving to church this morning, I remembered something else that had happened to me this week. I got caught up in a... Uh, uh, I don't know why I fall into these things, but I got caught up into a Facebook discussion. Okay? Oh, no. <laughs> and actually, this one was pretty profound. It was, it was in response to something that, uh, that uh, Mike Snowden had posted on his uh, status. And then uh, some people had responded and it got into some issues of forgiveness and things like this. But at any rate, a, a fellow started responding who was, who was obviously very, very angry at the whole idea of God. And, and, uh, and so he commented some things and he was raising all these objections and talking about evil in the world and everything. And it was one of those discussions that goes on comment after, for those of you who know Facebook, goes on comment after comment after comment. It just keeps going, you know. And you think, and everybody's comments get longer and longer and longer, you know. So mine's about this long, you know. And so, and this guy is really, really obviously angry and you're trying to be gracious and, 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 and speak graciously to him. And then, and this is going on over a period of about an hour or so. And down towards the end, he says, if you want to know why I'm angry, it's because, and then he tells the story of how his 14-year-old son had been killed in an automobile accident. 
And, of course, it changed the whole tone of the conversation at that point. And, and uh, I won't go into all the details. But, but as I was driving to work this morning, it suddenly made, I made that connection. Two 14-year-old boys. Two fathers lose their 14-year-old sons. And, and this guy, and I understand why he responds the way he does. I understand the anger and the hostility. You know, that's all understandable. It's not right, but it's understandable. And I understand that. But as I was driving to church this morning, just the contrast between, between Eric and Lindsay was so graphic. But if you and I don't walk by faith, the world will never see that contrast. If you and I don't walk in dependence upon God so that, so that we really live our lives in every area of our lives in a way that the world looks at it and they goes, they've got something there. There's something different there. And so, we, so when we suffer, when we suffer great calamity, Will we respond the way the world responds in those situations? Or will we respond in faith? When we suffer terrible wrong at the hand of another, will we respond as God calls us to respond by faith and confidence in the promises of God? Or will we respond the way the world responds? When we face decisions about the jobs we're going to take or the career we're going to be in or the woman that we're going to marry or how we're going to relate to that woman once we are married, when we deal with issues like conflict in relationship and conflict in marriage, when we deal with issues of finances and how we handle our money and what we do with our money and what we buy and what we don't buy, in, in the entertainment that we engage in, and on and on and on and on in our lives, the question is, do we, will we walk by faith? Or are we just going to kind of put our minds in neutral and just kind of go along with however the world does it? You know, I, I need a new car. Well, you know, this is the way the world gets a new car. This is how I'll get a new car. Or, I need a new car. God, I need a new car. How do you want me to get a new car? And the tragedy is with Abram and with Sarai is that when all was said and done in this situation, they looked just like everybody else. Here's a guy who had been doing a remarkable job of looking so different. All these years, he'd looked so weird. <laughs> and it made people stand up and take notice. And now he just looks like everybody else. And I would suggest to you it's going to be a long time before he looks different too. Because I suggest to you it's going to be 13 years before he finds out he made a mistake. So... So the, the tragedy of what happens here with Abram and Sarai is this, this picture that he has been painting all his life 
of the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the goodness of God has now been all smeared up. Now God, thankfully, is able to redeem those situations and He will redeem the situation in this case. I might add that they don't always get redeemed, at least not in the short term. But, but, but that's really part of the sadness of this situation to me is that, is that Abram has done such a good job of showing to others how good he thought what God was and how great he thought God was. And now at this point, he just opts for the world system. That, as you were talking about that, the connection between faith and obedience and suffering all kind of melds together that for Abraham, for Abram here, he's living by faith and that is waiting for a son to be born that's not there is suffering and is obedience. And the verse where it says Christ learned obedience through that which he suffered. suffered. Yeah. Yeah, and all that kind of all goes together. Yeah, yeah. it all melts together yeah. right here when we see that. Yeah. Yeah. Rick, now, I was just oh. here thinking about how God is amazing. <laughs> because really what he tells us to do is basically the same, respond the same way in life no matter the circumstance. Yeah. yeah. We don't have to decide, well, now in that circumstance, how am I supposed to do or saying this, now if this, this way, maybe I should act that way. Yeah. No, he, you know, it's like he wants us to remain faithful to yeah. everything. Yeah. And I want to point this out too, that, that Abram is, Abram's responsibility here is to wait on the Lord. But I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that waiting on the Lord is the same thing as passivity. Those are two different things. Okay. So, for example... When the children of Israel are ready to enter into the promised land, remember that story there, they're getting ready to enter into the promised land and they're there at the Jordan River. And what does God require the priests to do? Step into the water. They had to get their feet wet. They had to take some initiative. Okay, So, what, so they weren't being passive there. They were being active. But they were being active in obedience to and faith to what God had told them to do. Now, God has not told Abram what he's to do other than to love his wife. Okay? That's all he's told him to do up to this point. So that's all he's responsible to do. And God hasn't told him to go out and figure out some way to make this promise work. Okay. So, so let's be careful and not think that, that waiting upon God is passivity and just a refusal to do anything and God just does everything. Okay? The children of Israel walked into the water. When they get to Jericho, they walk around the city. Seemed pretty stupid, but at least they were active. It wasn't passive. Okay? So there are times in our lives when God's instructions and commands to us will be to act in faith. And there will be other times in our lives when God's instructions to us will be there's none of your acting is going to do any good, so you wait and you be patient and I will do this. But in all of these situations, in Abram's situation here, and the two illustrations I just gave you at the Jordan River and at Jericho, ultimately, in each one of those situations, the triumph comes only by the power and the intervention of God. Okay. So even though the children of Israel 
the priests walked forward and they stepped into the water. That didn't really do anything. They were just obeying God and God is the one who acted and stopped the river. Okay, well, yeah, go ahead. Why did what? Well, that's a pretty exciting uh, issue, actually. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about it today. Because <laughs> we don't actually find out why God's doing it until next week. <laughs> but, but it's really pretty exciting. And just by way of a hint, God's all about creating a mass of people to enjoy His presence and love. Well, I pray that oftentimes myself. And I think, in, I think there are times when we really don't know. And so we're just kind of moving forward and we're saying, God, if this isn't the direction to move, then you stop me. But that's not what Abram's doing here. See, Abram's not moving forward going, okay, God, I'm not sure, so you stop this. You know, He's not doing that. He's just charging ahead. And so I, I think there's a marked difference between it. I, I don't think there's anything wrong in a situation where we really have prayed and thought and looked at the Scripture and we don't have an answer to say, okay, God, I've got to do something here. You know, I, I'm at a fork in the road. I've got to go one way or the other. If this way isn't right, then you direct me this way. I don't see any problem with asking God to redirect us in those circumstances. May I say here at this point, I have some problems with what I would call the open window, closed door matter of faith. And that's and I say it that way because I've thought the same way. Okay, Lord, if this is wrong, close the door. And somebody says, well, if door, uh, God closes the door somewhere, He opens the window somewhere else, and you know all these analogies. Well, sound of music theology. I, yeah, <laughs> the, the issue I have with it, and what really changed me, is realizing that that action is not in my faith. And there are times when the door closes, and I'm supposed to bust it down. Mm-hmm. For what in whatever yeah. way, and I don't know when that is, except by faith. Yeah. So it's really hard not to want to live that way because I really want to know what's going to happen. I would rather, like you said, I'd rather have it be closed and say, "Okay, fine, I don't go this other way." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have to not live that way, and that's yeah. that is a real challenge. Well, I I think there is a balance there. Mm-hmm. I I don't like I say I don't see a problem when I have carefully prayed and thought through an area, and and. Uh, and, and I think there are, uh, personally, I believe that there are many decisions we make in life where to God it, maybe this seems a little crass, but it doesn't matter. It really, I don't think it really matters to God whether I drive a Chevy or a Toyota. Okay, I, 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 I don't think that's a life-altering maybe decision. Not maybe not a Toyota. <laughs> maybe a bad choice of cars right now. But, Unless the guy building yeah. the Chevy prayed for a job yeah. and God's providing it. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I see, and there's no way for me to know that. And so, in that situation, I say, God, when I go to the dealership, when I go back to the dealership, if you don't want me to have the Toyota, have it sold so that I'll know. You know, I don't see a problem with that. But there are other issues that are far more critical. And when we seek the Lord, and when we search for His answers, and and uh, and, and if doors are closed, and God's still saying. That's where I want you to walk. I want you to walk through that door. Then we walk through that door, even if it's closed. Yeah. 
if, if there's any humor to this whole situation, the thing I keep coming back to Abraham is he spent all this time trying to solve a problem that didn't exist. Yeah. God told him, I'm going to create a vision out of you. It's going to be from you. And he really, and I'm not criticizing him because anybody who's done it, he should have just said, you know what? It's a done deal. We'll go forward. Yeah. The good thing is that he did learn a lesson from it because later on when God asked him to kill his only son and they were going to the altar to do that, his son said to him, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham basically said, there's really no problem. Yeah. There's no problem. Yeah. God's already said to do it. So. And we discover later that he even believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. Yeah, yeah. So he does grow in faith, and that's an encouraging thing too, isn't it? Well, one of the reasons we opt to employ the world system rather than to wait on God is because, let's admit it, we want to be in control. I really don't like being out of control. I mean, I don't like... I like being out of control. I just don't like circumstances to be out of control. Okay, I don't like it when I don't have control of my circumstances. And Abram doesn't have control. And what Sarai presents to him is a way that he can be in control. What's the problem with that? It spins completely out of control. It just absolutely goes bonkers. When we grab for the control, so oftentimes we think, oh, I've got it now, I've got it. And then things just go completely out of control. Why? Because we've walked away from God's plan, who is the one who is in control. And so the result then is, yeah, she conceives. And, and God is intending to do a great thing through Hagar. And we'll get into all that next week. Hopefully, if we ever make it through this chapter, we'll get into all that next week because that's because that's really important. Those are important things to wrestle with. Okay, so she gets pregnant, but when she gets pregnant, what happens? She gets this gift from God, and she goes arrogant on him. See that? She gets this wonderful gift from God. We've already talked about this several times in the last week, that children are a gift from the Lord. And she gets this wonderful gift from God and the first thing she does is she thinks, it's something I've done. And so she despises her mistress, Sarai, because Sarai can't get pregnant. Of course, Sarai doesn't get pregnant because the Lord doesn't let her get pregnant. It's not Sarai's fault. But Hagar gets this, this arrogance and this pride that just makes everything go crazy. So she despises her mistress. And now Sarai is dealing with what she thought this was going to work out okay. Now she's dealing with her barrenness is even more accentuated. And her marriage is now threatened because she can't bear children to Abram. But Hagar obviously can. And so now she feels threatened by this upstart, even though Abram's not thinking that way at all. To Abram, she's still just Sarai's maid. That's all she is. And that's very clear. That's all Abram thinks of. Okay. So Abram's not thinking, but Sarai in her mind is thinking, my position with my husband is threatened. And so, 
And so, of course, she retaliates the way she does and she comes to, comes to her husband uh, and we'll end with this. She comes to her husband with this, with this just, you know, lashing out at him saying, would that the wrong that had been done to me, that is done to me, be done to you. I gave my maid into your arms and when she became, when she conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. What's going on there? Well, I don't think Sarai is mad at Abram for going into Hagar. That was her suggestion. What she's mad at Abram for is that Abram is putting up with, he's tolerating this treatment that she's getting from Hagar. And she's saying, well, well, I wish you were on the receiving end of this treatment. Then you'd understand where I'm coming from. I did this generous thing of giving my maid into your arms and now look what I'm getting as a response. May God judge between you and me. You're letting this thing go on. So in the first place, he fails his wife in failing to, to tell her, no, we're not going to do this. I love you too much. And then he fails to defend and protect her when she's attacked by Hagar. That may be a little harsh. But my experience is most guys are pretty well oblivious. <laughs> well, well, I think he was oblivious, which is his fault. If he's not aware of the way his wife is being treated... That's his fault. I agree with you. You're absolutely right on that. We are oblivious. And so... And so Abram tells, Hagar, tells Sarai to treat her as she seems right. I don't think Abram is approving of what Sarai does. He wants her to treat her right and justly under the situation. He should have dealt with it himself, but he doesn't. And he turns loose on Hagar, a woman who is threatened, insecure, fearful, and hurt. What does he expect to happen? And so Sarai lashes out at Hagar, and Hagar flees from her presence. Next week, we will see this remarkable story of God hunting down Hagar and finding her and pouring His grace upon her. Okay? All right.